As I read through this passage today, there's this theme of a vine and thorns and different things going on here, and it made me think of the first job I had. It was the summer that I turned 12, pretty much the day after I turned 12. My uh, mother explained to me that I was going to be working from that point forward, and I was going to be working that day that she woke me up. And she took me out to a cotton field, and it was the work, the man that she worked for, who owned thousands and thousands of acres of cotton. And they explained to me that I was going to be chopping cotton. Which chopping cotton actually means, if you're familiar with it all, it means that you're going to go up and down the roads and you're going to chop the weeds out of the cotton, right? These long rows. And so the cotton can grow unhindered, because you don't want other things growing up and stealing the sun and the nutrients and all of that. And so they put me on the first row, and they gave me a, a hoe and a file to sharpen it with, which I had no idea how to do at that point in my life. And the first row was up against a ditch bank. And was uh, this ditch bank was full of Bermuda grass. So the first row of cotton was also full of Bermuda grass. And um, I knew what a cotton plant looked like. I was, you know, I'd, I'd grown up around it my whole life, and I was very familiar with it, but it was really hard to tell where the grass ended and the cotton began. And so I did my best to remove the grass, but it was so embedded in the cotton roots that I ended up destroying lots of the cotton in the process. And so about halfway through the day, I'd only made like probably 50 feet of progress, and the boss showed up and saw the work that I had been doing and realized that the row could not be saved, and so he um, plowed it under, just... Started it over, just that one section of cotton. In our passage today, Israel is compared to a vine. And this comparison is made many times in Scripture, in the Old and New Testaments. Israel is the vine and God is the vine dresser, the perfect vine dresser preparing a lush garden for his own glory. Yet, Israel continues to introduce weeds into the garden, which choke out the vine, and even become Israel's object of worship. The weeds becoming the object of worship rather than the vine dresser. And it has become so bad that the only answer really for them is to start over, to wait indeed until the true vine could come. We see this ultimately in the filling of the coming of Jesus Christ who said to his disciples in John 15, I am the true vine. Jesus also says to us, you are the branches. Because that is true, we must understand our place in this royal garden. This passage continues the themes of Hosea and begins a slight incline up out of judgment. We're going to have to go back into some of that in a little while. But there's this kind of, this this hope. There's this admonition for the people and a calling to the people to repent. Which is a calling for us to repent. To break up the fallow ground. And to return to the one true vine, Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this passage, we'll break it into two main ideas. The vine among thorns, and then the true vine of God. With that, 
Let's look together at the text, Hosea chapter 10 in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more fruit increased, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord and a king. What could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble. For the calf of Beth-Avon, its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There have been, they have continued, or there they have continued. Shall not the war against us, against the unjust, overtake and give, overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, and you have reaped justice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalom destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in, in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil, at dawn the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So let's talk a little bit about the context. Hosea has walked us through Israel's adultery to God. And remember, it played out first in Hosea's personal life. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. In fact, he was instructed to go and marry a prostitute so that Israel could see their own adultery. It's been a while since we've dealt with Hosea's personal life. I think it's important to remember that backdrop here because that is the the whole theme of the book. Understands where we're coming from and where we're going. And I think we understand this in our as we see adultery in our own world. In any relationship that is seeking to heal from adultery, there has to be a period of mourning, there has to be a period of healing, followed 
or in contingent with, really, a period of discipline. This, this is where the offender has to follow some strict guidelines with a restriction of the freedoms that they once had. This is not only so that the offender can learn from their sin, but also to give the victim an opportunity to build trust and to have some measure of justice. As justice lies ultimately with the Lord, this is a kind of, but this is a kind of payment, this justice that the adulterer has to fill as part of the healing process. In many ways, our relationship with the Lord is this way. Jesus has paid for our sin in full. That is unquestionable. There is no way that that payment can be decreased in any way or no way that we can increase past our sin debt to the point of His sacrifice. We're never going to outpace Jesus in His payment for us. Yet, even as Christians, we experience discipline under our Heavenly Father, both as a way for there to be consequences for our sin so that that we will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we read from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. So as we work through this passage, that idea is in mind as we see see this in light of the vine of Israel. That brings us to the first point, the vine among the thorns. Look with me again at verse 1 and 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his altars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. This is a picture of a vine. And this is Israel being the vine. And it's about as healthy as a vine could be, right? Why is the vine healthy? Because this vine has a perfect vine dresser. When I go to my parents' house, my parents in Missouri, and I see their garden, I don't think, huh, my yard doesn't look like this. You know, like when I see their garden, I don't think this just accidentally happened this way. They work the soil, they plant the seeds at the right time, they fertilize, they water, they weed. Their garden is like a paradise because they know what they're doing. They build it that way. No one could look at Israel and think, How is it, it's so strange that this nation does so well. Because if you read the text of the Old Testament, you quickly realize the hand of God in all of their fortunes. You just begin it with Abraham, right? And you read forward. Everything they've done has been blessed by the Lord. And despite of this, they have their continuous efforts to destroy themselves. But even though their continuous efforts to destroy themselves, God continues to make sure that they are doing great. Israel, in many ways, is like a perpetual toddler, always attempting to make their lives much more miserable than they should be, yet still receiving abundant love and mercy from the Father. And notice what Israel has done with their blessing. They have built more altars. They have, they have their fruit is increased, and what are they doing? They're building more altars. They're improving their pillars, with the connotation here that the altars and pillars being to pagan gods. With every blessing from the Lord, they have turned and used those blessings to support 
other gods. This makes me think of like an employee taking the company card and purchasing personal items with it. It wouldn't surprise us if that employee was fired when they got caught. wouldn't surprise us at all, right? In fact, when we would hear about that, we would applaud that and think that was justice done. There needs to be justice in that situation. Even as we read verse 2, that their heart is false, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord is going to break those things down. We understand why God must break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Because their heart is false. They have used a blessing to create a curse. And the following verses, 3-6, through six, really show this curse. Because they say, we do not fear the Lord. She can't even fathom saying, but they have said this, we do not fear the Lord, everything in their society falls apart. You see this when it's talking about judgment, spreading or springs up like poisonous weeds. This is talking about the lack of justice in their society. It all becomes meaningless if it's not being anchored in the Lord. And this culminates with their concern over the fact that Assyria is going to take their golden calf. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria will tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. This is that golden calf that they worship. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. This calf, they're going to be so upset when it leaves. There's real sadness for them over the fact that their golden calf is going to be going away. Rather than being a solid oak unmoved by the world around it because of their connection to the God of the universe, Samaria or northern Israel, or northern Israel is said in verse 7 to be like a twig on the face of the waters. Easily moved, easily uprooted. In verse 8 we read that the thorns and the thistles take over the high places of Avon. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed, thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. This is representing nature kind of taking over their pagan structures, but when you pair it with the picture of the vine in the beginning, you see this picture over and over in Scripture, right, of this vine that's growing up, but the thorns that are coming in to take it over. Jesus talks about this in a very familiar parable. I'm going to look at Matthew 13 and that version of that, so if you'll turn there with me. This parable of the sower and the seeds and the vine would have been a very familiar picture to the Hebrew ear. Because again, all through the Old Testament, this is a picture that God used of His people. So Jesus doing this for the people, this would have made a lot of sense to them. And it's something really that makes sense to us even in our day. And so let's read in Matthew 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and the great crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. 
since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a very familiar parable to us. We could spend a whole ton of time here talking about this parable, and we probably will one day, but we're going to mainly focus on this seed that was thrown among the thorns. Those seeds were meant to bear fruit, right? Many times over that one seed. That one seed represents just one plant, but that one plant can produce dozens and dozens of seeds. But they didn't bear fruit because the thorns grew up and choked them out. Now Jesus explains this parable to his disciples a little bit later. So we're going to pick up in verse 22. He says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is like the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world come in, the lure of riches and power, the false promises of a pagan God, particularly for the people of Israel, this pagan God of fertility that was going to bring them much wealth, instead has brought them much death and struggle. Anything that would take us from hearing the word, or worse, anything that would become intermingled in God's Word so that we are no longer able to tell what God's Word is and what the what flies are is, this, is what he's talking about here. The life In the life of a believer, this can take many, many forms and it's typically anything that we think should be added to God's Word. When we went through Galatians, we spent a bit of time talking about this idea of legalism. And the effects of legalism on the church. Legalism is a, is a word that gets thrown around a lot today, so we have to be careful when we're using. The whole thrust of that book is the Judaizers' attempt to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ with circumcision, which made that gospel no gospel at all. For Israel in the Old Testament, they wanted their religion, they wanted their their worship, but they wanted it on their terms. Their their king created shrines. We've talked about this with Jeroboam and his sin, that he created these shrines or to this golden calf in an attempt to compete with Judah. And this problem continued well into Jesus' time. It wasn't the calves weren't still there, but this idea that there's this competition between Samaria and Judah and who where should we be worshiping? We've all remember the story in John 4 of the Samaritan woman at the well. And this was a question that she still had on her mind all of these years later. Which mountain should we worship on? Was the thorn that continued to thrive in God's vineyard. But Jesus straightened her out. He said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, meaning that it didn't matter which mountain. In fact, mountains or golden calves or whatever we add only create a problem, not a means to a solution. You've heard me rattle off lists before, so I won't do that today, namely because oftentimes when we hear a list, we think, okay, none of that was me. So I'm probably okay. 
We will be okay one day, brothers and sisters in Christ, but today isn't that day. Until Jesus comes, part of our work as Christians is to put those thorns and thistles, those things that we would add to his word, to rest. Removing them so we can grow unimpeded in the Lord. And note here, the danger isn't just for the believer. I think this is this is a strong warning here, but namely for the unbeliever, as the unbeliever will call upon the mountains back in Hosea 10, in verse 8. They will call upon the mountains, cover us into the hills, fall on us, rather than face a holy God. This makes us think of the passage in Revelation 6, which says that the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb is coming for the people and they would call on the mountains to fall on them. When the unbeliever comes face to face with the reality that the Word of God has been removed and God has come to seek justice, they would rather the earth bury them than face a holy God. So hear that warning. This morning, if you're an unbeliever, Jesus says that unless you repent, you will perish. And this perishing isn't just a one-time thing that happens at the end of our life, but is an eternal perishing. You will wish for death, but it will never come. Jesus calls all people to repent and believe. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in His name and be saved. Today is the day to be made right with God. Call upon the name of Jesus. But for those of us who are in Christ, it has not changed. We didn't stop needing Him once we started believing in Him. He is the true vine of God. And even for us, He is the hope, the only hope of our salvation. And that brings us to the second point, the true vine of God. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 again. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. The nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. This context is very important for the upcoming admonition that they're going to receive. Israel has a a vast history of sin as we've studied in the book of Judges. We got our full of that plus, uh, plus much, much more than our full. The last three chapters of Judges are in view here as we read about Gibeah again. We saw it mentioned in last week's passage as well. The sin of Gibeah led to a massive civil war in Israel, which God is dealing with now with Hosea. And he says, when I please, I will discipline them. This isn't a picture of a father who has never disciplined his child and understand that he's not waiting for a time, but he's never disciplined his child. Rather, it's the picture of one who, in which discipline is a normal part of the family dynamic. The people of God had this as their foundation. Just If you don't think that strict discipline was a part of the foundation of the people of God, read the first five books of the Bible again. They had very strict codes. Breaking them could be punishable by death. The God of the universe gets to decide His law. And it isn't He isn't all that concerned with our complaints concerning His law. And just like a good parent, as they discipline their child, the parent's goal isn't to 
constantly appease the stubborn child, and we don't see that with Israel, but rather look to a future time when this hard discipline will pay off. And we see this in this passage in verse 11 and 12. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Verse 11 tells us that Israel loved to thresh. The cow that got to do the threshing had the easiest job. They hooked them up to this this uh, machine that basically moved the threshing floor and the cow even got to eat according to God's law that they shouldn't muzzle the cow when they work in the threshing. And so this was this was a pretty cherry job if you were a cow. You got to do the threshing. Israel loved this easy work. They loved the fact that they were a blessed nation. And they took those blessings and they built altars and pillars to foreign gods. Now, they're going to be hooked to the plow. They were a trained calf and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. They're going to be hooked up to the plow. And what is the purpose of that plowing? Verse 12. Break up your fallow ground. It's a soil that hasn't been planted for a long time, that no, no seed has been in it. Maybe it's just overrun with grass, much like that ditch bank that I experienced as a 12-year-old kid. Israel would have the opportunity to do this as they experience the discipline of God with Assyria coming. Break up your fallow ground. Sow seeds of righteousness so that you may reap steadfast love. Seek the Lord so that you can see Him rain down salvation upon you. There is nothing more difficult than for a believer to understand that difficult times that they are going through may just be the Lord's discipline in their lives. And a lot of times when we think about this, this doesn't have to be anything that's major going on or anything Physical. It could just be the general feelings that we have of just dread or, or malaise. I don't know what's wrong. I just don't feel close to God anymore. For many Christians, the answer is obviously someone else or something else. Right? It's not themselves, so what do they do? Well, I don't, I don't feel close to God anymore, so I'm going to start going to this church. Or I'm going to stop hanging around these people. Or I'm going to, it's my kids that they need to change and then I'll feel closer to God. Or it's really my spouse that's been holding me back for so long. And if I could just deal with that, then maybe I could finally feel close to God. And you've heard him say this. This is having this great new experience, but there's still one thing that's not changed and that's the person in the mirror. They've been that threshing cow for so long. Everything has been so easy and free, and now that the yoke of the plow is on their neck, it has to be anyone's fault but their own. 
And a new church may do it for a while, or blaming someone else may help you feel better for the moment. But ultimately, you have to face yourself again. And so there's a strong admonition for us here, church. Ask the Lord to break up your fallow ground. And He will do that. We saw that as we read in in the book of Ruth today. Right? Naomi came back into town and she said, you know what? My life is so awful and the Lord has made it awful, by the way. You should just call me bitter. And that will take care of it. What did the Lord do in Naomi's life? He broke up her fallow ground. Ask the Lord to do that. Sow seeds of righteousness. Reacquaint yourself with the ordinary means of grace. We talked about that on Wednesday night. That God uses to sanctify His people, to glorify His name. And you will reap a harvest. And the harvest will be an increased, steadfast love of the Lord. Seek after the Lord. Remember that it's the Lord Jesus that first sought after you. You would not even seek after Him had He not came after you first. Even while you were yet His enemy, He came so that you could have eternal life. He became sin so that you might become the very righteousness of God. And you have not lost any standing with Him at all, even though you feel like it. So the admonition here for us is to seek after Him that He would come and rain righteousness on us. Let's go to Him in prayer.